All right. We're continuing on in our conversation together tonight. And the study that we're doing together, I have called Every Thought Captive. And we talked a little bit about why that is last week. So if you missed that, uh, you can go to church, our Church Center app. And you can go to Wednesday nights. And you can find those messages right there. Messages being last week's. And then this one will be there as well. Okay, so I want to encourage you to go back and look at that. So I have a little outline of what we're going to be doing tonight. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to look at a couple of objections that were given by you to me uh, last week. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, 4, just kind of as an introductory uh, passage to look at and wrap our minds around as we process these objections. We're going to look a little bit at deconstruction. We're going to look at some apologetic methods. We're going to look at supporting scripture. And then I'm going to give you a summary at the end of everything we talked about just to make sure that all these things, one through five, uh, they are all tied together. And I just want to make sure that we see that at the end. Okay? Because you might be wondering how do all the things you just mentioned there fit together in the conversation. And hopefully they do. And hopefully you see that very clearly. So two, uh, two things. Um, and, and one of them uh, I just quoted here because it's simple. And then the other one I, I not only am giving to you in, in my, in my kind of structured question, but then I've taken the question that was asked to me, and I've also done some research on this particular question. And I'm putting these together because what I'm going to present to you tonight is kind of an argument that these two things are attached to one another. Okay, so here are the two objections. Uh, number one. Uh, you said all this to me, but I don't believe the Bible, right? Chris McManus, that's a good question. And I think it's very fitting to this other one that I was also asked. Uh, you know, you've said these things to me, right? But you're just weaponizing the Bible, and you're using and interpreting it in ways that were never intended, right? Um, somewhat fitting, actually, Brett, with what you asked me, right? But this comes from a just a, a slightly different perspective. Uh, so you say these things to me, but... Okay, I don't believe the Bible, though, so why are you saying these things to me, right? What, what arguments do you have? I don't believe the Bible. You're telling me biblical things. I don't believe the Bible. Stop talking to me. Okay, what do you what do, you do with that? Um, and then you give an interpretation of a text. You say, see, you see what Paul's saying? Do you see what Moses is saying? Do you see what the psalmist is saying? You're like, but you're just weaponizing the Bible. You're using it. You're interpreting it in ways that were never intended for it to be used or interpreted. What do you do with that? Um, as we look at these objections, um, I want to read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, 4 to help give an angle on our approach to these things. Like what, what I want to mostly focus on tonight is how do we grasp in our own minds these questions? How do we see them? Are these real objections? How should, do, must I give an answer to these questions? Do I need to defend, what, what do I need to defend exactly, right? I don't believe the Bible. Oh, man, so now my mission is to get you to believe the Bible, right? Because that's what you just said. So now my mission has changed. You don't believe the Bible. Well, how could you not believe the Bible? So now my mission is I need you to, <clears throat> to believe the Bible, right? Uh, is that the way we should approach it? Uh... And what evidence are you going to use? Are you going to use uh, evidence from history to show that the documents are reliable, transmission history is reliable? What are you going to do there? Or are you going to appeal to your experience? 
You're going to say, well, I read the Bible and it was so impactful and meaningful to me and it has changed my life. See, so how could you not believe it? What are you going to appeal to to argue, right? Uh, what is our basis for argument? Do we need an argument for that? Uh, same thing with the second one. So let's read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, 4 and get our bearings and then move on uh, to talking about deconstruction a little bit and I'll tell you why we're going to move there, okay? So 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And really my goal is just to read this and not make too many comments. That's my goal. I think that's going to happen. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. If you don't know who those if you don't know those two names, by the way, um, they're not in the Bible. It says Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Go look in your Old Testament. You're not going to find those names. Uh, this is a Jewish. His, this is a, a from Jewish history. This is passed down tradition of the names of the magicians that opposed Moses as he was doing his signs in front of Pharaoh. Remember that. So so just as these two men had the appearance of power. Like their, their staves turned into snakes, right? Had, they had the appearance of power, but they didn't actually have it. Just as some people have the appearance of godliness, but they don't actually have it. So that's the connection right there. So these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding, regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men, right? It, it was shown pretty quickly that they were not of God. They didn't have the power of God, right? They were uh, most likely, uh, well, all of them were ultimately uh, taken out, right? God was shown to be the one who has power in that situation. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and evil people uh, and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But instead, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they're going to turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. What a picture of reality, right? So, what do we see happening there? Is that Paul sets a standard. You have followed, that's in verse 10, you have followed, and, he, and he's saying this positively, okay? He's saying, you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. You followed my aim in life. You followed my faith. You followed my patience. You followed my love. You followed my steadfastness. You even followed my persecutions and sufferings, right? You're in it with me completely in how I act and what I believe. Isn't that what he's saying? In all of this stuff, you're with me, and you need to stay with me, and you need to teach others to be in it with us too. Because it's one thing, and it's not something else. What we are called to be part of is what Timothy was called to be part of. And the thing he was called to be part of is the thing that Paul was part of, and he was spreading his teaching. Actually, we're going to cover this on Sunday morning. He's going to talk about his teaching to the churches. And uh, we're going to cover this, that, that area right there a little bit on, on Sundays. Okay, So a little bit of overlap here. But he's saying to Timothy, um, there is something that is good, beneficial, and helpful, and it's something that has parameters. It's not something that's fuzzy, and we don't know where it begins and ends, and we don't know what's being taught and what's not being taught. We don't know how to act or not how to act. We don't know. It's kind of blurry. But blurriness is Christianity today. We don't know what to believe exactly. We don't know how to act exactly. We don't know what that is exactly. We've blurred all the lines. We've smudged them, right? And uh, in some cases, we erase them all together. But what's happening is there is a standard. And Paul, can you hear in his words, he's saying, you have followed my teaching and my conduct, my aim in life, my persecutions, my faith, my sufferings, all this stuff. He's saying, these things are good and what you should follow. There are other things that are not good that you should not follow, right? So there are good teachings. There are bad teachings. There are good aims in life. There are bad aims in life. You follow me? There are categories of good and bad, and Paul has set those categories. And in his letters, as he teaches the churches, he is setting up that standard of teaching for us to then explore, right? As he teaches the churches... As he says, as I teach in every church, this is what Paul teaches. This is his aim and conduct in life. And so Jesus Christ gave him a mission for the churches, and this was his mission. And so he goes about to all the churches, and he teaches the churches, and he strengthens the churches. And then just as in Corinth, he uh, writes to them and says a lot of things. Also, the, the churches in Galatia, these things, like, uh, where you're getting it wrong, I need to tell you where you're getting it wrong. But where you're getting it right, I'm, I'm going to tell you you're getting it right. And, but I need to let you know, specifically, because I'm not there with you right now, you need to stop doing this stuff that you're doing and believing the stuff that you're believing because it's wrong. It's wrong. Was it only wrong for that time in history, or is it also wrong today? Um, some people are not so certain of that answer. And those people are the people who follow the path of deconstruction. So let's talk about that just for a moment. Deconstruction. Here's some, just some bullet points about deconstruction. Um, if you're not familiar, I know many of you are familiar with this already, but 
Deconstruction views things kind of like this. The Bible is a product of humanity, and it came to us, uh, it came to us as our spiritual ancestors struggled with God in uncertainty. And when we read the Bible, we gather and we wrestle with them and, and we walk our own path. Okay, that's, that's all one concept. Don't go to that next little bullet there yet. Okay, so you get the idea of how those in de- the deconstruction world view, view the Bible. Um, because, again, the objection here is, what? But I don't believe the Bible. Or you're using the Bible in ways it was never intended to be used or interpreted. Okay, well, when we say Bible, what do we mean? Do we mean this thing that is a product of humanity? That's what you mean. That is not what I mean. Must we argue that the Bible is the product of God himself by means through humanity? Um, Is it something we can argue? Is it something we can actually verify? Can we change their minds about this thing? Um, But as they understand it, so it's like a collection of writings from history, and it's about our spiritual ancestors, right? Who are they? Anybody who's spiritual and their writings made it into the Bible, right? Or didn't, actually. Because what is the Bible? It's just a bunch of books you collected, some you liked, some you didn't like, but they're all the same. So when we read the Bible, then, we need to understand this. It's just a, a collection of documents about a spiritual people, and it's basically their diaries of their interactions with God. That's what it is. And so they got it wrong a lot. Paul got it wrong a lot. You know, they got a lot of stuff wrong. And so we sympathize with them. We're there with them. They were just wrestling with God and they were in very uncertain places. And so that was their story. And aren't we so encouraged by their story? But can't we also learn to not do what they did and create our own story of godliness? Whatever that is. This is deconstruction. What is deconstruction? I I actually didn't say, really. So construction is the building of one's faith, right? These are in, in... Richard Rohr's terms, okay? And he's saying, he's, he is a deconstructionist. He's saying, here's how it works. You construct a faith, whether it be from as a child, right? And then you grow up and you've constructed this thing that is your faith. Um, but at a, at a certain time, you then deconstruct as you challenge your faith, right? Your faith is challenged. People start saying stuff like this, and you say, well, that actually sounds really good. Because all these dogmatic things that are in the Bible and all these really harsh things that uh, the Bible has to say, I can just say, well, they were an angry people struggling with God and they didn't get it. And we need to be more like the picture of Jesus who is love and charming and, you know, so gracious all the time and accepting of people. And we just need to model Jesus. But all the other things are just a little bit too harsh, and they're closed-minded. So people ask questions regarding the Bible, the history of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. We say it's the Word of God, and other people say, uh, are you sure it's the Word of God? Because I'm pretty sure it's the Word of men. Because men wrote it, did they not? And we would say, well, sure, yes, they did, with qualification. We would put a little asterisk by that. Yes, men wrote it. But we would say, as Scripture says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Word of God is actually breathed out by God. That's what it is. And how did he breathe it out? By means of men that he used to write it. Um, But they wouldn't make that jump because that's a sense of spirituality that you just can't say. 
Uh, you can't go that far. So what do you do after your faith is challenged? And normally the first thing that's targeted is the Bible because really, and this is my own way of, of summarizing the whole debate, it's the same debate really as the Reformation, in my opinion. It's the same debate because the question is who or what has authority? And for deconstructionists, the question is who or what has authority and where it was in the Reformation in the high church uh, moving towards scripture itself rather than the church. That was the debate then. The debate now is you say the Bible has authority and I say this has authority. This is what matters. What I believe and feel and experience. This is the authority. And so it's, it's, it's just a matter of who has authority. Who or what has authority? Do we believe the word of God has authority? That is, it gets to override what you think and feel, right? Whether you think and feel a certain way, it doesn't matter because your authority has said what you think and feel about that is actually wrong. There is a standard, and the standard does not just arise from within you based on how you feel or how the society is going, right? So after you deconstruct, that is, you take these things you've built up, right, over time, and you say, okay, this piece not working for me. This piece not working for me. And you, you deconstruct. You take it all down. And you say, now, okay, now let's reconstruct. Now that we've taken all the pieces apart, what, is there anything here that we can salvage? Right? And you put a couple of pieces back. But really, you just need to be ready to take those pieces right back off because it's all in flux. Right? We're all just on our journey like they were on their journey. And that's what this is all about. What does God want? According to deconstructionists, progressive Christians, God wants humanity to thrive and flourish. Uh, that they can know with absolute certainty, but what they will also say is the only thing we can be certain of is uncertainty. But what they know with certainty is that God wants humanity to flourish. And how we are to understand the flourishing of humanity is the way that humanity feels, removed from what scripture says. So, this is their mindset, okay? Um, this is the mindset of deconstruction. You have to take the source of authority away so that you can begin to speak things authoritatively. So it has a lot to do with this whole thing saying, but I don't believe the Bible. And I think the way that you're using the Bible is never how it was intended to be used to begin with, right? So this is how it's part of the same conversation. Now, I think there are two sides to this issue uh, happening. And the two sides are, well, I, I, there, there are two groups of people really asking this big question, right? Or having these objections. That is the unbeliever who's not a deconstructionist. They're not a progressive Christian. Um, they're not taking Christianity and removing parts and then building parts back and still calling themselves a Christian, they're actually just not a believer. They accept nothing about the Bible. They don't believe in religion. They don't believe in God. They think it's all made up. They think it's a fairy tale. It's a creation of humanity itself just to make you feel better. And if it makes you feel better, go at it. But I think it's all ridiculous and silly, right? That's one person. And they say, but I don't believe the Bible, so stop talking to me. The other group says, now I believe the Bible, but on my terms, not on yours. So we can talk about scripture, it's useful, but if you want to throw it out, I mean, that's okay. But if you want to talk about it, sure, let's talk about it. But like this, let's talk about it, right? So I don't believe the Bible, but you're quoting the Bible to me. You're talking about scripture with me, but I don't believe it. So 
two big groups of people are really having this objection. The question I have tonight is how do we approach that? How do we think about that? How do we answer that objection? Okay? All this making sense so far, what we're talking about? If you, I'm moving on from, um, uh, from the deconstruction thing. I just wanted to touch on it. But if you have more questions about the world of deconstruction, um, Craig turned me on to this particular book. I think it's excellent. Uh, it's, it's called Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers. Okay? This is an excellent breakdown of uh, progressive Christianity and deconstructionism, if you've not read it. Has anyone else read the book in the room? A couple of you have? Excellent, right? Uh, excellent, excellent breakdown of this whole mentality. If you want to learn more about it, um, and if we want to appropriately answer someone, what do we need to do? We need to understand where they're coming from so we can have conversation, so we can understand the terms they're using. Okay, so let's shift our conversation because right now we're asking, so what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that mindset? Now, I understand there's a ton of different individual questions about that, right? There's a lot of different things that could be brought up with that. And so I'm approaching this more from a, a categorical standpoint. How do we think about these types of questions and approach them? So I want to go somewhere very specific with this tonight. So I'm going to hopefully get there quickly. But before we do, we need to talk about apologetic methodology. And I hope very soon you'll see why. In apologetics... That is a defense of the faith, right? You can approach, there, people fit into three categories, mostly there's a lot of crossover. I'm actually going to argue for more of an eclectic uh, position where we take from all three, just so you know up front. But people settle themselves in these categories. I am an evidential apologist, right? Uh, that, that is where I fit. I am a presuppositionalist. That is where I fit in apologetics right? So what are these different approaches? Because uh, hopefully you'll see here in a second what this all means and how it works together and how it helps us in answering these questions. So let me maybe just get to it, okay? There is the evidentialist approach in apologetics. What is that? Actually, as in everything in the theological realm, everything has categories and then subcategories, okay? I'm not going to go into all those details, tonight, I will maybe mention them, but uh, that's not the point of what we're doing tonight, okay? Basically, the question is, when someone has objections to the Bible or the faith or whatever it is, how do we go about responding to that person? That's the big question. The evidentialist will say, well, there's two steps that we follow, okay? Step one, present arguments for the existence of God. That's step one. There must be a God, and here's why, okay? Step two, once step one is established, you then present arguments for Christianity as the most reasonable explanation for how all the pieces fit together, okay? Does this sound familiar? Yeah, that's the evidentialist strategy. Um, now, some would say they're historical, some would say they're cumulative case, but they're using evidence and they're saying, I want to argue the case that God exists 
and that Christianity is the best explanation for all that we have going on here, and here's all the evidence that makes sense of that, what evidence, whatever evidence we can get our hands on, right? Logic, philosophy, archaeology, science, whatever we can get, we accumulate these things, we state our case for the existence of God. Most of, most of the time, that's uh, philosophical arguments for the case of God, or for the existence of God. Something exists rather than nothing existing, for example, right? Why does something exist rather than nothing, right? Uh, so anyway, you have those kind of, uh, kind of responses. Now, take that to our objections. The evidentialist approach to, but I don't believe the Bible. You may say, well, there is a God, God exists, Christianity is the best explanation, if Christianity is true, then the documents follow. The church is God's church. The history of the documentation makes sense. God is going to preserve his word. And you would follow kind of along that track right there, right? If there is a God, then the miraculous is possible. Would you all agree? If there is a God, then the miraculous is possible. Is what we have here a miraculous thing? Or is it a pretty standard, ordinary thing? Or do you not know? Uh, I mean, it's miraculous. Although it has come to us in pretty ordinary terms. And that's, that's the big thing about it, isn't it? Although it is miraculous, it didn't fall from heaven and went, blop, oh, got a whole complete Bible here. That's, it came to us through very ordinary means. And that ordinary means throws the human mind off. It came to you through ordinary means, that means it must be very ordinary, right? Is there another way to approach this objection? I think there is. And in this, pati this particular objection, I think it applies more broadly, but there's much to be said about the presuppositional approach here. What is the presuppositionalist approach? To presuppose something. If you suppose something, then you're thinking it, right? You have it, you're taking it, okay? To presuppose it means to have it beforehand, right? So I've got something beforehand, and we have it, and now that's talk. But I've already got this stuff. We're just presupposing it. I'm not arguing up to this point. We're just assuming that it's all there. So the presuppositionalist approach, uh, approach assumes the existence of God. It doesn't argue for the existence of God. It assumes the basis of Christianity that it is true. It does not argue that Christianity is true. Okay? And you say, well, then what's the whole point of the, <laughs> of the apologetic then, right? Uh, I mean, that's, that's a good question, except um, here are a couple of things. In the presuppositionalist approach, which I, I have a lot in common with, that appealing to common ground with the unbeliever, it doesn't take seriously the corruption of the fallen world. Appealing to common ground with the unbeliever does not take seriously the corruption of the fallen world. The problem with the unbeliever is not his lack of evidence, but it is his sinful condition that is the problem. It is not his lack of evidence, it is his sinful condition. So there are no arguments or steps that I need to take to lead a person to faith. Because what can reason do removed from faith? Right? Now, if you were with us through our time in Isaiah, or really any portion of Scripture, it has become pretty clear to us 
that it is God who gives faith. It is God who gives eyes to see. It is God who gives ears to hear. And so unless you see it with spiritual eyes given by God, you're not going to see it. Unless you hear it with spiritual ears given by God, you're not going to hear it. So what good is it going to be for me to do to give you all this scientific data, this historical data, this philosophical argumentation, if what's stopping you from believing this is a spiritual issue, not an ordinary issue? It's not that you're just not intelligent. You're like, well, you clear, clearly don't know enough science, right? And if you just knew enough science, then you would become a believer. You just don't know enough philosophy. If you just knew more philosophy, you would become a believer. You just don't know enough history. If you knew more history, you would become a believer. It's outrageous to think that way, understanding things as we do. Some people do not understand things the way we do, and they truly do believe that if they can present a reasonable case that that person will say, wow, you got me. I suppose I'll become a believer because you have convinced my mind. Now, we might hold these things in a balance because we might say, well, however, what you're saying is true and I understand, I do believe that some people have a roadblock to their faith. And sometimes it's scientific, sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's philosophical, right? Do we leave those alone? Do we leave those objections alone? Or do we do something about that war that's waging, right? Maybe something called siege warfare, right? Where we go up and we destroy the strongholds, the arguments, and we take every thought captive, right? And so we don't want to just leave those lingering. We want to say, you know what? This is a miraculous uh, situation here. We are a people of faith. But uh, I am not ready to say to you that uh, our faith is unreasonable. In fact, it is the most reasonable. And I'm going to tell you how. And you may have their ear, you may not. If anything you say to the unbeliever has their ear and it leads them to faith, a couple of things should be said about that because you're not going to lead them to faith, first of all, without the gospel. You're not going to lead them to faith through science. You're going to lead them to faith through what God has said in his word about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be science that wins them. Okay? So you have a couple of different approaches, and I, I hope you see the divide, and I have intentionally made them wide. Sometimes the divide between these two is shorter. I've intentionally made them wide for contrast purposes for tonight. Okay? You have the evidentialist approach, which accumulates evidence, two-step process. God exists, Christianity is most reasonable, here's why. Presuppositionalist approach, I don't need to argue the case for God, I don't need to argue the case for scripture, but I am going to present that Christianity is reasonable. Okay? And then finally, the exper uh, experientialist approach says, uh, well, it must be true, and I'm going to prove that it's true, and I'm going to overcome your objection. I already kind of alluded to this earlier, but I have experienced the change myself, right? Or my mom wasn't a believer, and she became a believer, started reading her Bible, and you wouldn't believe the change that took place in her life. That's an argument from experience. There are some people who live in that world, and that's the only way they argue to the faith. And why do they do that, maybe? It's because they say, this is not, this is not science. 
This is not evidence. And even, this is not philosophy. This is not reason. It's an experience to be had, right? So if we're going to argue for Christianity, what are we going to argue? The experience. Now, how valid do we believe that that is? Well, I'm not going to discount all of that, right? Because Paul even argued his experience, okay? So I'm not going to take that away, but just telling someone an experience is not going to say, oh, really? Because a Mormon can do the same thing, and in fact does. That's basically all they have. How do you know it's true? The feeling it gives me, right? I tried to press a Mormon on that one time in talking to them. It's like, but why? But why do you believe that what you believe is true? Why do you believe these other scriptures are as true as, as what these scriptures are? What do you have? Why? Well, when I read them, it's the feeling that it gives me, that I just know that they're true. And in fact, that, that wasn't an isolated incident. That is actually how they're counseled to speak to the matter. It's an argument from experience. So the issue with that is, you can say you've had any experience and say, how can you tell me that my experience was wrong? Now, sometimes we actually have this issue in the church because some of you or some, a new believer or someone with a, a certain kind of past or something says, I had an experience and the Lord spoke to me through this kind of weird situation that I've never heard of before and scripture doesn't speak to. But they are convinced that this is what has happened or something. Or, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, throw out anything you want to about your experience, and I can't, what are you telling me? My experience was wrong? I, I'm not, I guess I can't tell you anything. I, I wasn't there. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but I do know that uh, if you had an experience that contradicts Scripture, I'm going to tell you your experience was wrong. Sure, right. Things like that, right. Yeah, so uh, that's the experiment, uh, experientialist approach. So remember, we're talking about how do we answer, how do we deal with these deconstructionist thoughts, the atheist thoughts, or the, the per person who says, I just believe that's a human thing that people have come up with, and it's crazy, this whole religion you've made around it. I just don't believe it, sorry. Is it wrong for us to look into the history of the transmission of the scriptures and how we got our Bible and to give them a summary statement of those things? And to say, listen, it is reasonable. Let me just, if you're interested in that, let me tell you how that came to be. I find great value in that. Not only for me as an individual. I want to know more about that. But it is something excellent just in our arsenal of tools to say. You have that objection. Listen, I, I'm sorry. You just, if I could say, you, that's actually not how it happened. I, I actually know a little bit about that. If you would let me talk to that a little bit. So here's kind of how the Bible came to be. And you say that the Bible didn't become complete until the fourth century when a guy wrote a letter uh, during Easter and he said, here are all the books that we believe. And so some guy in the fourth century really created your New Testament canon. And we say, well, that's actually, I understand why you think that. But let me tell you a little bit about what was happening in the background the few hundred years previous to that. Do you have that information? If you don't have any of that information, um, I did do a series here a while ago on how we got our Bible, and I covered some of those things. Um, but there are some excellent resources I can point you to in that direction as well. Okay? So, anyway, I'm saying, is having that information good for those objections? 
Yes. Is that going to make them believe the Bible? No. If you can present your historical, scientific, philosophical case, and you have all this history and you have all this evidence collected, they're going to say, wow, you're right. I had never looked at all the evidence before, but looking at the evidence as you have presented to me now, so clearly, thank you, I believe. We haven't even talked about sin. You say, it doesn't matter, I believe. You know, it's like, that that doesn't work like that, right? Uh, So how does it work? So it is good to say Christianity is reasonable and you cannot tell me that what I believe about the scriptures is false or outrageous wrong, you are actually outrageous for not believing the scriptures. Is it okay for us to do that? Should we do that? Yes. Information, good information to have. Okay. Now the presuppositionalist approach, um, I think holds a lot of weight here and we should understand why. It's because no matter what evidence we give to the unbeliever, they are not going to all of a sudden be convinced that your uh, interpretation of scripture is correct, that the Bible is a, uh, miraculous thing rather than an ordinary thing. They're not going to believe it as the word of God rather than the word of men. So what do you do about that? That's, isn't that what we're talking about? That's the objection. I don't believe the Bible. What do you do with that? So that's why I said tonight, I want us to be thinking about that properly as a category. That's my goal for tonight. So I do have uh, some scripture that I'd like to read for you tonight. And three passages that I think are incredibly helpful in just helping, helping our mind to be kind of, maybe we're resetting a filter in our minds and we're saying, okay, now I know how to let that thing fall through my brain before I say something about it, right? Because if you think your job is then, I need to go home and collect all the data I can because they just gave an objection that I don't know how to answer. Now, if they gave an objection that you don't know how to answer, is it okay to say, I don't know that information? Yes, it's perfectly fine to say that. Um, Is it also good for you to say, you know what, but I'm so thankful we're having this conversation. I'm going to look into that, and we're going to talk about that more. Is that also good? Do you want to just burn the bridge and never have that conversation with that person again? Absolutely not. You want to keep that conversation going. So talk to them about it. Get information about it. Print off a Hebrew manuscript, for example, right? And say, here, look. Look at this. Let me tell you about it. Isn't this super interesting? You say, wow, I've never seen anything like that. And you just keep the conversation going. Why? That we might be a gospel presence to them, that we might share the gospel with them, that we might read scripture for them, and that we, as long as we have that window open for us, that we're giving this to them, right? So how should we think about it that whole time? How should we process that? How should we filter it? That's the question. Romans 1, 18 through 32. We reference this one a lot, so I'm going to spend less time on this one, more on the other two, probably. For the wrath of God, beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, do what with the truth? Suppress. Just keep that in mind. Right? When we're talking to people about Christianity, about our faith, about the gospel, about the Bible itself, what do unrighteous people do with the truth? They suppress it. Push it down, push it away. That is what they do. 
Uh, Four, what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this is what I said to you before. Just a general revelation. General revelation is enough to condemn you, but it is not enough to save you because in it you have the revelation that God exists, that he is all-powerful, that he is there, that he is present, that he is the creator of all things, and you have denied him. You are without excuse. It is enough to condemn you by simply existing. But it is not enough to save you because it does not contain the special revelation of God, which is here, right? It is the word of the gospel, the gospel of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are ambassadors of and we share with the world. So as we give the gospel, we're giving them something they can't find out in nature. So they are without excuse, however. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. That's important. So it's not that their brains just, they're thinking, they're reasoning, and their hearts, right? The heart, now we get it. It's like the heart. That's right. It's the reason. It's the inner man that has just been, it's all wrong. It's dark. You don't understand what's going on. It's getting darker, in fact. And you are speaking to that dark heart and mind. And you're saying, the Bible is the word of God. It is trustworthy and true. It is infallible and errant. The very word of God, breathed out by God. And that dark heart and soul and mind says, I don't believe the Bible. Right? That's what happens. So just remember what we're doing in this warfare here. Remember that it's spiritual in nature. It is not ordinary. It is not natural. It is spiritual. It is a spiritual battle. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God resembling a mortal man for birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For, the, for this reason, God gave them up. This was an action of God. That this is how dark and twisted this world is. That he gave them up to even this their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women. They were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's how bad it is. Sexual perversion is the giving up of humanity to their own dark hearts, and we see that all around us, don't we? And this is the world that we're speaking the truth of the gospel into. It's a hard world. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, malice, covetousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love that one. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Do we understand? As we supply reason. I think I have this. Do I have this on the screen? 
Do I have a next slide? Okay. People cannot reason themselves to God, right? And believers cannot reason people to God. As we supply reason and wage this warfare, both offensively and defensively, that's from last week, we are being obedient to Scripture. There's the Scriptures we looked at last week. Relying on God and His grace and power to do the work of revealing Himself. Because who is it who actually reveals God and the truth of the gospel? God Himself. But does He use people, ambassadors, to speak on His behalf that He might reveal Himself in that work? Yes, but there's a specific way in which He does this. He doesn't save someone simply by you telling them your conversion story. He doesn't do it simply by you giving them scientific data that the Big Bang can't be true, right? Um, if you argue someone just a belief in a God, that is an argument to deism, an impersonal God that created things. That is not the God of the Bible. Um, and some people believe, ah, oh, we've, we've got a step closer. There is no step closer. I, you're either a believer or you're not. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're not a step closer to believing in God. You either don't believe in him or you do. Okay? I, I'm just, I'm a little different on that. Some people would say, well, we're, we're getting there. We're working on them. They're almost there. It's like, you can, how do you know? How do you know that someone's almost there? That's, I think that's kind of a ridiculous thing to say. You're either a believer or you're not. Now, you might say, it appears to me that their heart is open to the gospel right now. Now, that, I get that. But to say that they're almost there, it was, you know, I don't know what we're talking about. Okay? So we're going to end with a couple of passages and, uh, and call it a night. So that's two passages, the two we didn't look at yet, right? The two passages we're going to look at are Romans 10, 13 through 17, and 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, and we'll be done. Okay? Now, just remember, we looked at two objections. They have to do with the Bible. We're talking about deconstruction, what this looks like in the world today, but then we're also talking about apologetic uh, methodology and how we should approach the question. What I'm arguing to you is that this is a spiritual issue, not a natural issue. However, it doesn't mean that we throw out all the natural reason, but natural reason is good, okay? Um, so we supply the reason, but we depend on the grace of God, not the reason itself, okay? But I'm, it's a little bit more specific, and so I just want to read these passages that tell us about that. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him of whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are, those, are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does faith come? Hearing. Through hearing and hearing through, through the word of Christ. Some says God, some says Christ. It's okay, it's just a textual variant. Does that prove that your scriptures are bad? No, wrong. Because we understand why there's a variant there, right? The reason there's a variant there is because we see those two somewhat interchangeably within that context, right? It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. If it's the word of Christ, guess what it's also the word of? It is the word of God. That's right. So how does the gospel message come? Through a 
kind of a nebulous type experiential a God exists situation? Is that how it comes? Or is there a specific message of a specific God that they must hear and they cannot believe unless they hear that message? Because otherwise, what are they believing in? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? So how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So how does someone come to faith? By preaching. And who are the preachers? The people of God. Right? The people of God. Okay, last one. Hope you see where I'm going with all of this tonight. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. It says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Right? We need to, we need to remember that one, right? Have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone, maybe over a period of years, decades maybe, and you do, you just feel like, well, they're not a believer, they're never going to be a believer, they irritate me, um, and yeah, I'm done with it. And you do, you become disheartened, your heart becomes hard against that, right? Don't, we don't lose heart. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. So we shouldn't lose heart. Why? Because it's not our efforts that save them anyway. God wants us to have effort, but our effort is not what saves them. It is he who saves them. And is, every, is anything ever too far gone for God to save? If you believe something is too far gone for God to save, you're going to lose heart. I can guarantee you. Because you're going to come up with your own reason why they're too far gone. Right? Uh, Paul thought he was too far gone, and he saved even him. Right? Isn't that what Paul said? Chief of sinners. Therefore, having this mercy by the mystery of God, we don't lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. That we do. We don't lose heart, but I'll tell you one thing we don't do, or we don't have disgraceful ways. We don't use underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Right? Do we agree with those statements? Right? Now, I'm sharing the gospel, we're living out the gospel, as a church we're preaching the gospel, we're living for the gospel, and we refuse. We refuse to tamper with God's word. We refuse to use cunning ways. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do that. But instead, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. In other words, he saved me, and here's the message of salvation. So I'm entrusting all that I am to you in this message. I'm leaving, I'm leaving nothing out. It's an open statement of the truth. I'm not going to try to twist it or make it fuzzy or anything like that. I refuse to do that. We refuse to do that. Do you agree with that statement? I refuse. Now, although at times we want to do that because how do we feel? We feel disheartened. And we feel scared. It's because like the thing you're dealing with right now, like the Bible is very clear about and... I'm a little nervous about saying anything about that because I'm really scared. So maybe we tiptoe around that and the person says, can I still be a Christian if I, and we say, well, oh man, if I just said yes, they'd become a Christian. Is that true? Is that what we actually think? Or instead, do we give them by the open statement of the truth, the gospel, and by God's grace, they will believe it or they will not believe it. 
Because as we talked about on Sunday, right, even faith itself is a gift of God that he gives freely. He gives. And so we pray that God would give that gift, right? Isn't that why we're doing it? God, give that gift right now. I don't know if this is the conversation or not, but God, give that gift now because that's what I want. I want salvation. Give them that gift. And so we're ready, willing vessels to be used in that situation. That's what's going on. So then it says, uh, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to who? It is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, so let me just pause right there and say, but I don't believe the Bible. The Bible's false. The Bible is not divine, right? And it, that is, it doesn't have divine origins, is what I mean, okay? The Bible is not a God, okay? It does have divine origins, right? This is the word of God. It is not God, but it is the word of God. So, the, I don't believe the Bible, and I, because I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe the gospel message. Their minds are blinded, veiled, covered. Are you able to remove that covering by means of your philosophy, reason, argumentation, whatever it may be? You are unable to do that. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, the God of this world, who's that in reference to? Satan. Um, and some people say, see, Satan's in charge. You've got to understand things in context. Scripture speaks to Scripture, right? So, uh, although the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, in a second, what does God do? Well, let's just keep reading because he says, he says right here, look. That's the, that's, that's the picture, though. You, you, we all, at one time, heard the gospel message, blind, our, a veil was over our minds and our hearts, right? Did not believe it, did not accept it. How did that cover come off? Well, because someone presented excellent argumentation. They had this guy present, he had, he had these PowerPoint slides that were unbelievable. How did it happen? It says, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what happened? How did the dark mind and heart become illuminated to the gospel that it is true? God, how did light come to the dark world, right? In creation, go all the way back to creation. There was darkness, but then there was light. And where did that light come from? God spoke it and the darkness said, I don't think so. That, that can't happen. So when God says, let there be light in a person's heart, what happens? The darkness says, it's too dark in here. No, thank you. Is there any darkness too dark that the light of God cannot penetrate? The answer is no. So what happens? If God says, let there be light in a person's heart, what happens? There is light in that person's heart. That's what happens. Just as there was darkness in this universe and God spoke light, so there was darkness in the person's soul. And God says, let there be light, and it happens. But we have this treasure 
in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 7, that, that's the summary of all tonight, right? We have this treasure, that reality, that, that knowledge, that this power belongs to God and not to us. We are the jars of clay. We're fragile, broken, frail, right? We don't have the power to do these things, but God does, and he uses us as vessels, but the vessel is very broken and frail, right? But he uses the vessel to deliver the message, and when we deliver the message, it is up to God in his grace and mercy and timing to say, let there be light. And when he speaks, it happens. Okay, so the only way you're going to fail an apologetic encounter with someone is if you do not speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to them in their objection. If you just do not give them Jesus, and sometimes giving them the gospel of Christ can take seriously 20 seconds, sometimes it takes 20 minutes, sometimes it takes 20 years. In reality, I mean really. But we preach the gospel. And sometimes it's a momentary fleeting situation, and sometimes that thing is a relationship that we continue having encounters, right? So just remember, as these question, questions are approached, do we, do we prepare ourselves? Yes. Do we present Christianity as reasonable? Yes. Do we give them scripture? Yes, we should. But then ultimately at the end, we have this treasure in a jar of clay, and we're reminded that this power of transformation of salvation does not belong to us in all of these encounters. It belongs to God, and he will do the work of transformation. Right? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time, and uh, we just are very aware tonight uh, that we, we are broken and frail, certainly. Um, although some people in Scripture are very wise, competent, uh, brilliant people, Lord, some of them are very common and not brilliant, and at the same time, you use one and all. And it's not because the power lies in these people. The power lies in you. And so we simply seek to be obedient. We want to be obedient with the minds that you have given us, with the hearts that you've given us, with the lifestyle that you've given us, with whatever it is, our gifts, talents, abilities, all, all these things. You have given us these things, and we simply want to be stewards of our time, our energy, and every, and every encounter that we have or relationships that we have. We desire to be obedient to the gospel, and we want to in, entrust uh, them with the gospel, with the open statement of the truth, and I pray that you would guide us in wisdom to, uh, to do that faithfully. And I pray that overall, in all these conversations, we would not fool ourselves into thinking that we failed because we couldn't reason someone to God. We failed because we didn't have all the data. And uh, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Don't let us become disheartened, um, but help us to remain faithful in you, knowing that this power belongs to you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you so much for being here. Uh, that's all we've got for tonight.